Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, good morning if you're on the West Coast, or good evening if you happen to be in Europe uh, or in Asia. Welcome to the November Tosca 3030, um, and there are a reasonable number of people on the line. I, I know we're competing with the Trump impeachment hearings, uh, so thank you for joining us. Next slide. I'm Herb Stryker. I've given a number of these. Next slide. I'm joined today by my partner, uh, Lawrence Halpern, Larry Halpern. He heads up our OSHA practice, and so he's going to talk about occupational exposure issues related to the NMP draft risk evaluation that EPA just published. Next slide. So, as you may recall, Congress uh, mandated that EPA initially conduct risk evaluations for 10 chemicals. These were taken from the 2014 TOSCA work plan. The risk evaluation ha evaluations had to be completed by December 19th of this year, but there was a possibility of a six-month extension. And it seems like and that extension will have to be used in all cases. So, so far, uh, EPA has published draft risk evaluations for a number of chemicals, uh, six of the ten. And the first three have undergone peer review. Next slide, please. So there is a peer review process for risk evaluations. It is not mandatory. It is within EPA's discretion. Uh, the statute says that the draft risk evaluations may be peer reviewed. However, uh, under TOSCA Section 26H5, EPA is required to consider the extent to which information it has used in its risk evaluation has been peer-reviewed. And so EPA seems to be inclined to submit all of its draft risk evaluations to the peer review process. Next slide. So EPA has promulgated uh, a peer review regulation. I'll give you the citation there. Uh, EPA has uh, committed to conducting its peer reviews using the EPA peer review handbook and the OMB bulletin as guidance. Uh, but, however, EPA does say in its risk evaluation rule that it may use a peer review or scientific advisory committee on chemicals, peer review forum. Uh, it's not mandatory, but it may use it. Uh, but it, importantly, although EPA will solicit recommendations and advice on the scientific assessment it conducts, it will not seek peer review on its ultimate unreasonable risk determinations. Next slide. So the new TOSCA, Lonberg uh, amended TOSCA, does uh, have a provision uh, for the establishment of a scientific advisory committee on chemicals, which has been set up. Uh, the SACC, which is the Scientific Advisory Committee on Chemicals, is to provide independent advice and expert consultation. Now, the SACC's uh, composition has to be balanced. So you have representatives from academia, you have representatives from government, you have representatives from public health interests, public interests, animal protection rights groups, and industry. And also there are experts on exposed subpopulations, uh, Native Americans, etc. And normally EPA must convene an SACC uh, meeting at least once every two years. However, uh, EPA is now convening um, these meetings to undertake the uh, peer review of these risk evaluation process. So they're meeting quite frequently. Next slide. <clears throat> so uh, as I indicated, the SACC has uh, reviewed three of the 
<coughs> risk evaluations. The first one was PV29. That one, and we had a presentation on that uh, 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 late uh, about a year ago, that one was heavily criticized by the peer review committee, uh, but much of that was due to the fact that there's a very little data on PV29, and so it's not surprising uh, that, uh, that EPA was taken to task for having conducted a risk evaluation in the absence of uh, sufficient data uh, to, to make a, an adequate uh, regulatory conclusion. The next one up was 1,4-dioxane. That one uh, did better than the PV29, but it was still criticized heavily by the uh, peer review committee. Uh, now, you may remember that in the problem formulation document for 1,4-dioxane, EPA decided they would exclude consumer uses, and they would also decide to exclude uses that were regulated by EPA's solid waste office, disposal pathways, and its drinking water office, so drinking water by consumers. And that was heavily criticized by the SACC. So I quoted, I provided some quotes from their peer review uh, report, which is about 166 pages, uh, quite extensive. Uh, they said, for example, that if every program office of the EPA says others are assessing the risks, and thus not including them in their assessment, the U.S. public will be left with no overall assessment of risks. So that is a very strong condemnation of EPA's decision not to include consumer uh, uh, exposures, not to include uh, exposures due to uh, the waste, uh, 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 waste uh, and not to include exposures due to drinking water. Uh, and they also said, for example, that if risks have been assessed by other program officers of EPA, then the agencies should present them as part of the underlying data to support this task evaluation. Um, they also took EPA to task on, uh, on conducting the risk evaluation in the absence of sufficient environmental fate and effects data. And they said, quote, uh, the agency must gather the data for an assessment or include an assessment based on the assumption of near worst case exposures. The committee recognized that EPA had very little time to do these risk evaluations. They have to conduct 10 in two years with a six month extension, but they said, quote, haste is incompatible with robust, protective, and reliable uh, risk assessments, end quote. So given that sort of criticism, I think EPA has to go back to the drawing board if they ever want this risk evaluation to survive judicial review. Now, just so I understand, a final risk evaluation um, is not subject to judicial review by itself. If EPA makes a determination that a use or substance presents an unreasonable risk, it must go to risk management phase. That risk management rule is subject to judicial review, uh, which would include uh, a review of the underlying risk evaluation. Secondly, if EPA makes a no unreasonable risk determination, EPA must issue an order uh, formalizing that determination, and that would then be final agency action once EPA issues the order, and that could be subject to judicial review. However, EPA may delay issuing those orders until it ultimately completes its rulemaking on that substance, so go after the risk management phase. So it may be some time before the risk evaluations that EPA has conducted for these chemicals you know, will be subject to the judicial review. Now, the last uh, risk evaluation the EPA looked at was HBCD, and the panel said that that was actually, they said, uh, the best of the three, 
and uh, they said that, and so it is, in my, at least my view, that EPA is, seems to be learning from the exercise. They seem to be improving the quality of risk evaluation as time go on. Uh, but a lot of it depends on whether the compounds are data-rich or not. Uh, in the, if EPA has a lot of data to deal with, it can do a robust risk assessment. Uh, it seems to have problems if there are data gaps. Uh, but even in the HPCD case, which is a very heavily regulated chemical, it's a persistent organic pollutant under Stockholm, uh, there was still uh, uh, a shortage of environmental effects in fate data. Next slide. So where does EPA go from here? Well, for these first 10 chemicals, because of the timing that Congress mandated, two years for the risk evaluation, um, uh, risk evaluation by the end of 2019 with the extension of, for six months, there was very little time for EPA to call in data on the Section 4 or Section 8. Uh, but I think it's going to be difficult for EPA to avoid uh, calling in data if it's going to survive peer review and perhaps ultimately judicial review of its risk evaluations. The second thing is, and we've talked about this before, I've given presentations on this, there is a problem with EPA's ability to use REACH data, and quite frankly, it needs to sort out that problem uh, if it's ever going to have a sufficient uh, data set to do a lot of these risk assessments. Next slide. This is just to tee up the NMP draft risk evaluation, which uh, my partner Larry Halpern will talk about. That was announced in the uh, Federal Register on November 7th. I give you the docket there. The peer review committee meeting is scheduled for December. And comments are due on January 6th. Next slide. Larry, I turn this over to you. Thank you, Herb. Uh, just to give you a picture about the magnitude, there are approximately 13 doc documents in this docket dealing with the risk assessment. There's a, an overall risk assessment document and the supporting documents on the consumer exposure, on the environmental exposure, on the workplace exposure. There's tables, statistics. Uh, it's a monumental task just to read through it. And with all the information that's there, there doesn't appear to be any information that was collected from an actual site visit. So just to give you a picture, the major areas of use for NMP are in petrochemical processing, engineering plastics, coating specialty chemicals, electronics, and various cleaning activities. Next slide. So for purposes of this analysis on the occupational exposure side, EPA identified the potential routes of exposures thermal contact with the liquid, vapor passing through the skin in areas that were not covered by personal protective equipment, and inhalation. The agency noted that some of the inhaled materials would be digested, but there was no real way of just separating what was inhaled through the respiratory system and what went through the digestive system, so they combined them together. The endpoints of concern were reproductive toxicity uh, and developmental effects, uh, decreased fetal body weight, decreased fertility, and some fetal mortality were the endpoints end identified. And then the drivers were really acute and chronic inhalation and, and dermal exposure. So the analysis started with the process description. Again, there was no site visit, so EPA just went and looked for the best description it could find somewhere in the literature of what the process was. And in at least one particular case with manufacturing, it happened to be the Netherlands document that was submitted in connection with the REACH 
activity rather than anything in the U.S. So they went through a process description. They looked at the various worker activities in terms of processing, maintenance, transfer, cleaning uh, that would be performed in connection with the use and application of NFP, NMP. Um, there were two types of exposed workers they looked at the actual users of the NMP, and then the non-users who were still in the occupational workplace. For the purposes of the users, they were looked at as being potentially exposed to dermal inhalation exposure. The non-user was pretty much inhalation exposure and generally assumed to be lower than the users, but they collected data on near users and non-users and far non-users when the data was available. Again, as Herb mentioned, there, there was a problem, we'll get into that in a minute, with how much data was actually available. They developed a methodology for pursuing the evaluation of the dermal inhalation um, using various data, which we'll talk about in the next slide. Uh, based on the methodology that was developed for the dermal inhalation exposures, they applied them in a uh, physiological-based pharmacokinetic model developed inputs from the model, plugged it into the model, calculated the margin of exposure, uh, compared it to a benchmark exposure, and then determined whether the risk was significant or not. So they developed the, what I'll call the PBPK model parameters for each occupational exposure scenario. Uh, the primary factors were the uh, percent fraction weight in the liquid product, the skin area exposed to the liquid product. Uh, for the most part, they took it to mean a two palms or one full hand for what you would call a moderate or a normal exposure, and two full hands for more of an extreme worst-case scenario exposure. They also looked at a glove protection factor which we'll talk about later, and depending on what particular industry it is, they either assumed that a glove was available and used and it was appropriate for the use, or that it wasn't and came up with various protection factors for that. Uh, they also came up with estimated durations and frequency. Uh, for the purposes of skin exposure, there was really no data on how often someone was exposed to this particular material in their skin in terms of duration or frequency, so they made a variety of assumptions. Being airborne concentrations, um, there was some monitoring data, but actually very little out there that turned out to be right on point for most of the exposure scenarios, so a lot of it was based on modeling. <coughs> and then as far as the skin area that was exposed to airborne chemicals, they used a maximum of 25% of the body and then pared it down depending whether the particular sector was likely to use PPE that would cover up the portions of the face neck and arms that otherwise would be the 25% exposed. Looked at body weight, and then, as I mentioned, worst-case scenario, which they called high-end and central tendency, which tended to be more of a mean-medium value for these various parameters. Just to give you an idea on the inhalation exposure monitoring data, as I mentioned, there was no dermal monitoring data. As far as the inhalation data, there are 16 sectors the EPA looked at, and I've basically assembled, and you can read through this particular slide and the one after it, but as you can see, there's basically no monitoring data for most of these activities, and they relied on a process description from the Netherlands REACH Annex 15 restriction report, and actually 
all the manufacturing data was either short-term transfer data or modeling data in terms of getting exposure scenarios. Again, with packaging, which is a major sector, no inhalation monitoring data, chemical processing, which is a huge area. They relied on six models from the Netherlands sub submission and three EPA models, chemical formulation. Seven samples were from adhesives formulation, and everything else was modeled. Uh, in the paints, you can see spray applications. They had a fair number of samples. Everything else was modeled. Uh, no data for printing and writing. Basically, one model exposure for all metal finishing. And they appeared to rely on 11 samples for, for paint coatings removal. Most of those were dealing with graffiti removal. So you can go through the, the next slide, but you get the gist of it. it. It's basically a scenario where they did a lot of modeling and there was limited data on the broad range of activities that were covered within each sector. As far as the actual worker exposure estimates, um, EPA used uh, CDR data, TRI data, BLS data, and census data to try to identify the number of facilities and the number of employees within each of those facilities, but they never actually identified the number of employees who were actually exposed to the NMP, so everything is based on estimates. Then with respect to the glove protection factors, as I mentioned, they took an approach that where there was an industrial use only, it was quite likely that the particular facility would have a fairly effective, if that's the right word, not necessarily robust, but at least effective hazard communication program and a personal protective equipment program with hopefully uh, hazard assessments and appropriate use of properly selected and maintained chemical-resistant gloves. So in that particular scenario, they assumed that the glove would provide a protection factor of 20. When you got to other areas, EPA used various assumptions. Some of them seemed somewhat arbitrary to come up with protection factors for gloves, depending whether they were likely to be used and likely to be effective, uh, all the way down to basically protection factor of one, where there was either no glove used uh, or where there's no basis for concluding it was reliable for the purpose of uh, chemical resistance. So, as I mentioned, there was a PDPK model that related human and rat exposures associated with adverse endpoints in rats. Uh, they used it for a benchmark approach, um, aggregated dermal inhalation exposures, came up with an uncertainty factor of 30, and therefore, using the reference dose and 30 as the benchmark, uh, if the reference dose divided by the estimated actual exposure was at least 30, then they considered it wasn't an unreasonable risk. And the one interesting thing I'd like to say is the description of the analytical framework that EPA followed seemed better explained in the short peer-reviewed charge document than it was in the 400-page analysis that was provided for public comments. So this next slide is just an example, um, and I apologize. This is basically taken from the um, EPA assessment. I, I should have labeled it that way. 
But uh, the bottom line is, if you look at it, you can see the point of departure, POD, the reference point, which was developed. So they developed one for chronic exposure, which is the 183, and the one for uh, acute exposure was about 216. And then they took that particular POD, divided it by the estimated exposure uh, based on no glove, a glove with a 10, 10 protection factor and a 20 protection factor, and then came up with a, a margin of exposure. And if the margin of exposure was at least 30, then everything was fine. And as you can see, in the no glove scenario, there was a problem and with gloves giving a protection factor of 10 and 20, they were well over the 30. So depending on whether you thought the, uh, or EPA thought the glove was gonna be providing that level of protection, you either did or did not find yourself with a uh, significant risk problem. So EPA, this is not in every single entry, but to give you the idea of some of the concerns um, they basically said the assumed estimates for duration of inhalation and dermal exposure are uncertain. The skin surfaces are uncertain that they assumed. Uh, they didn't find data on the usage of loves and assumed various usages um, without necessarily a lot of underlying data to support it. And then the assumed glove protection factor values, as I mentioned, were, were in many cases pretty uncertain. So. Um, I guess overall, EPA seemed to indicate that the reliability of this assessment was in the medium range, but there, there's certainly a lot of questions. Uh, based on the assessment, they identified these sectors, uh, several industrial sectors based in, in formulations and incorporation of NMP into articles as providing an unreasonable risk or presenting unreasonable risk that would require some further examination. Again, this is preliminary. Next slide. And then again, this is the, the other grouping of use scenarios that were identified as presenting unreasonable risks. So, some just some observations. Um, EPA said in the draft document that if you made a comment previously in the scope or the problem formulation with respect to this chemical and they didn't really accept it and reflect it in a revised uh, risk evaluation, uh, you better make the comment again because they're not going to go back and review uh, comments that were made in connection with previous documents. Um, uses identified as presenting unreasonable risk may be reevaluated based on comments provided and eliminated. And on the other hand, you can imagine there are maybe comments saying that a particular use that wasn't identified as presenting an unreasonable risk. Uh, may get some comments causing reevaluation and that may be added back. So if you uh, agree with EPA's assessment on something, you ought to tell them about that. And if you disagree, you ought to tell them something about that. There's clearly a lack of adequate exposure data. It would be useful for people to consider providing that data to them. Um, and again, the entire report was not based on any site visits and it's hard to comprehend how you could come up with a a really solid evaluation without site visits. Okay. So I'll provide some final thoughts and then Larry. Sure. So a couple of things. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, EPA does not submit the ultimate uh, presents an unreasonable risk or does not present an unreasonable risk finding to peer review. Uh, 
So what we have in the draft uh, evaluation document with respect to problem uses or, or uses not considered problematic is where EPA, EPA's consideration of those uses. If you have, if you engage in those uses, you really need to take advantage of the comment period. There's no question that the environmental groups will be weighing in very heavily. They weighed in very heavily on each of the different risk evaluations that EPA has conducted uh, so far. So industry, if, if, you're, if these uses are important to you, the ones that uh, EPA has concluded uh, present unreasonable risk, then you need to get whatever information you can into the agency to uh, convince them that no, they have some, they've done something wrong in terms of how they've estimated occupational exposure. Um, this one is a purely occupational exposure problem. Uh, environmental uh, uh, risks were not considered to be significant. So this one is an occupational exposure problem. If you're dealing with uh, things other than consumer risk, it should be possible for industry to put together robust exposure data to inform the agency's decision making. So, um, so quite frankly, uh, uh, I think there's a lot of work for industry to do. Uh, there are a lot of uses here that EPA has determined uh, present a reasonable risk. And uh, if you don't want to find yourself in the risk management phase, uh, then it's time to be engaged. You have a relatively short, uh, short uh, comment period. Larry, how would you compare this risk assessment? You've, you've done a career of, of conducting occupational exposure assessments, reviewing occupational exposure assessments. How does this compare to the kind of stuff that OSHA does, let's say, in establishing a standard mm -hmm. or, or other groups that uh, well, OSHA, you, you say, make a good pointer, but I was thinking about that. OSHA usually looks and says, okay, is there a significant health endpoint and there's a significant number of people exposed? And, of course, usually they start with cancer and reproductive toxicity and some of the other things come in. Um, so they do an analysis and say, okay, is there a significant risk out there? If there is, they're charged with trying to identify the particular industrial sectors it applies to, but they don't get into to all this level of detail about where. They basically say, okay, there's a significant risk out there. They identify the likely sectors that are affected, and then they come up with a standard and basically say, okay, if you're not in compliance with the standard, then you need to comply with it. But they don't do this kind of detailed nit, nit analysis of saying, well, this sector is and this sector isn't. Back to one particular question that we got, just so we're clear. Uh, there was a finding of unreasonable risk for a significant number of industrial sector yeah. uses. Yeah. What EPA concluded is that the non-user in those workplaces was not going to be exposed to an unreasonable risk because the inhalation risk wasn't significant, but the dermal risk was a combination. The, right, the people who would be in the workplace... Staff. Supervisors or somebody who is just right. working in the area cause and using that right. chemical. Right. Well, now, now remember that uh, NMP has undergone a review in Europe, uh, and they ultimately uh, established an OEL. And so, uh, with some of these uses, I think EPA is going to have to, in the, when it comes to the risk management phase, uh, establish an OEL. It's going to be very interesting to see how the agency goes about doing that because it has relatively little experience in uh, establishing OELs. So um, and the other thing, though, I guess, yeah. is that there's a significant issue about the dermal exposure being more important, and they made assumptions about, if you want to call it the industrial users, having pretty good dermal 
plant exposure plant protection plans and some of the commercial users not. Uh, so how that's going to work in the real world where EPA is not going to walk around inspecting people to see whether they have gloves on or not. Yeah, we had one question. We just have, but somebody asked about the consumer exposure. Did you look at that? There, there were some that were identified as unre posing unreasonable risks, right. but I don't remember what they were. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, the cleaner, the use of, I mean, use of cleaners, I guess, mm -hmm. yeah, by consumers, that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, those will probably be well, crystal ball going to be restricted, banned or whatever, phased out. Okay, so. Um, that's it. So the the next uh, next thirty thirty is uh, uh, December eleventh. Can you go back one slide? Mm -hmm. uh, and we I promised uh, we always announce the OSHA thirty thirty, which is um, Wednesday, November. I think that's not twentieth. I think it's the twenty seventh. Uh, but anyway, check your count. I think it's the twenty seventh. And uh, the next uh, Tosca thirty thirty is no, uh, December eleventh. Um, and we're going to have shortly after this in 135 our Reach 3030. And the topic uh, this month is uh, plastics and uh, the circular economy. So if you have an interest in plastics, I wouldn't miss this one. Anyway, take care, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>